You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 18. Hello, ladies and gents. We are back with another installment, and I'm happy to say my voice is once again functioning in peak form. Thanks for being patient with me last week as I dealt with that cold. I also want to thank everyone who went to check out the GoFundMe campaign for our fellow metamorph, Randall Fulton. As I mentioned at the beginning of last week's show, Randall and his family have had some very bad luck lately on the medical front, and he still needs some help getting back on his feet. He still needs to raise another $445 in order to meet his goal, so if you can spare a few bucks to help him out, please head over to GoFundMe.com slash HelpRandallFund and chip in whatever you can. Now then, let's get back to the story. Today I'm bringing you part three of the Metamore City novel, The Three Graces. In last week's episode, Amelie experienced a spiritual rebirth through the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. Her newfound religious faith led her to begin the process of becoming a priestess, despite her husband Nathan's reservations about the church. Meanwhile, their daughter Natalie grew up in a social setting that was almost completely defined by the church and its affiliates. The summer before Natalie turned 16, though, Amelie informed her of what she thought was tremendous news. The head priestess of the church, Allura, wanted Natalie to become her personal attendant, something that would require Natalie to give up many of the extracurricular activities she cherished. This led to a fight between Nathan and Amelie, as Nathan argued strongly for his daughter's independence, and Amelie insisted that she must learn submission to the church hierarchy. Angrily, Nathan left his wife alone and went to sleep in the guest room. There he was found by Natalie, who confessed that she was scared to become Allura's attendant, because the priestess seemed to control the minds of the girls who served her. Nathan and Natalie would need to continue attending the church in order for Nathan to keep advancing in his law firm, whose senior partners were active in the faith. But Nathan was determined to protect Natalie from anyone who might try to manipulate her, even his own wife. Content Advisory This section contains strong sexual content. It's not appropriate for children, and listener discretion is advised. The Three Graces, a novel of Metamore City, by Chris Lester. Part 3. Twelve. Amelie. As I lay in our bed that night, I clutched Nathan's pillow to my chest and breathed in his scent, trying to understand how things had gone so wrong between us. I had known from the start that Nathan was agnostic, but I could not understand how we could sit together through the same services year after year, and still he felt nothing. The power of the blood was so real, so immediate, so present. It had transformed my life, given me purpose, and a profound sense of the divine mystery that embraced a soul. How could Nathan not feel the same? How could he have hardened his heart so completely? But Natalie... Natalie was even worse. I had raised her from a pup to know the power and presence of the blood. I had taught her the secrets of the divine mystery, 
She knew our holy texts better than many twice her age. But now I could sense her slipping away, following her father into doubt and apathy, and maybe even apostasy. The thought that I could have failed so completely as a mother tore me apart inside. After an hour of tossing and turning, wrestling with these demons, I could bear no more. I needed counsel and clarity. I took the bedside phone from its cradle and dialed the number for Priestess Allura. She picked up on the third ring. Amelie, she said, I thought you were keeping daylight hours. Is everything all right? No, my lady. My voice sounded soft and weak. I hated it. I can't sleep. Are you busy? I... I need to talk to someone. I don't know what to do. I see. Elora's voice was pensive. Certainly you may come over, child. I believe you know the address from my apartment. I do. Thank you, milady. I'll see you soon, child. I dressed and left the apartment quickly and quietly, so as not to disturb Nathan and Natalie. My hands shook as I guided the skimmer to Allura's flat, on the fourth skyway level of Valos Tower. Even at this hour the tower had a valet on duty. Once he had seen my acolyte's cart for the Church of Eternal Brotherhood, he ushered me into the parking garage without question. Elora met me at the door to her apartment. I presume the valet had informed her of my arrival. I bowed at her feet in submission. After placing her hand on my head in blessing, she raised me up again and embraced me. My dear Amelie, she said, cupping my cheek and chin in one gentle hand. Come inside and tell me what cares burden your heart. I followed her into a flat, a tasteful work of understated elegance, and took a seat on a long couch in her living room. She brought me a cup of herbal tea, which I accepted gratefully. The taste and scent of ginger, honey, and lemon began to calm my nerves. I bared my soul to her that night, my deepest and darkest fears, that Nathan would never enter into true communion with the blood, that Natalie would abandon her faith, that, in the end, Nathan would force me to choose between him and the church, and I would lose the dearest love of my life. Priestess Allura listened closely, seated beside me on the couch, almost as if she were my equal and not my head priestess. I looked up at her only occasionally. It seemed easier to say the words when I looked at my hands or into space, but whenever I did look at her, she was watching me intently, her dark eyes full of sympathy. I am glad you could come to me with this, Amelie, she said, when at last I ran out of words. It is a hard thing when our loved ones struggle with unbelief. I nodded wearily. I just wish I could show them the truth, that I could make them feel the power of the blood that I have experienced. Priestess Allura was quiet for a time. Well, she said at last, there may be a way. I looked up at her. Her pale brow was furrowed in thought, her eyes distant. What do you mean, milady? I asked. She looked at me then, and her dark, glittering eyes caught me and held me, as always. You know that the power of the blood flows through me, she said. That is why I can work the divine magic of our priesthood. Yes, of course, my lady. I bowed my head to her. I have felt it from the first day I saw you. 
Yes, you have always been attuned to the blood. It is what makes you such a capable acolyte. But not everyone is so sensitive. Some require a personal connection before they can know the power of the blood. If the power were invested in you, your daughter and your husband would both feel it much more strongly. I sank back into the couch, feeling defeated. My lady, I still have nearly a year before I can join the priesthood. I fear I may lose them long before then. No, of course, Allura agreed. You must act now. But you need not wait until the blood's power flows through you by your own investiture. I can give you a portion of my gift, loan you part of my own power for a time. I stared at her, amazed. No one ever told me of this, I said. Yalura smiled. It isn't something we advertise. This is one of the deeper mysteries, available only to priests and those acolytes we deem trustworthy. I can lend you the power, but you must tell no one how you received it. Such knowledge would be dangerous in the hands of the unworthy. I bowed my head to her. I swear I will tell no one, my lady. I will accept this gift gladly. Very well. Elura rose to her feet and faced me. Kneel before me and lift up your head. I did so. Elura crossed to an altar in the far corner of the room, where she took up an ornamental dagger that sat on a stand there. She bowed before the Ankh on the altar, murmured something under her breath, and crossed back to me. She rolled up the sleeve of her dress, exposing the pale white skin of her arm. She drew the tip of the dagger across the skin of her palm, making a thin, shallow cut. Blood began to ooze out of the wound, filling her cupped hand. You must drink it, she said, no doubt reading the alarm on my face. The power of the blood runs through me, Amelie. Partake of this communion and that power will flow through you as well. I was astonished. In all my years of study and training, the imagery of the blood had always been treated as a metaphor. Yet here I was, watching the actual blood of my priestess filling her palm as she beckoned me to drink it. The idea of drinking blood was not inherently repulsive to me. The curse had made me a vampire bat, after all. Still, the revelation was jarring, as if a member of the Ecclesia were to discover that the Eucharist shared by the priests were literally composed of human flesh and blood. Do not fear, Elura said, smiling down on me. As I said, this is one of the deeper mysteries of our faith. You are ready. Tentatively, I reached up and took my priestess's hand in my own. Then I lowered my face to her palm and lapped at the blood. The effect was like nothing I had experienced before. A rush of euphoria shot through me, as my skin flashed with sensations of hot and cold. I felt new vitality fill my limbs, making them strong. Above all, I felt the presence of Priestess Allura within my own mind, full of love and approval for me, her sworn servant. I felt that she was seeing into me, knowing me, filling me with herself, and it was not an invasion but the purest joy. With the power of the blood that she had lent to me, I felt that I could do anything. I looked up at Allura, and I could see her aura, like dark fire around her. She looked like a goddess, beautiful and mighty and terrible. Then I looked down and saw the same aura surrounding me, weaker than hers, but there just the same. Take this blessing, child, 
Elora said. Show your family the power and wonder of the blood. May it restore their faith. I bowed to her, prostrating myself completely at her feet. It shall be done, my lady. I returned to our apartment and immediately went to the guest room. The door was locked. I turned the knob only a little harder than usual. There was a loud snap, and the lock broke open easily. I opened the door to find Nathan and Natalie on the bed, sitting up in alarm. Natalie screamed. Wait, it's all right, I said, in what I hoped was a soothing tone. I extended my hands toward them, palms out to reassure them, and I felt a measure of the power within me stretching out to encompass them. I could still feel Priestess Allura within me, guiding my hands, and with her direction I shaped the flow of that power in ways I could only dimly understand. Calm down, my dears, just calm down. At once their eyelids became heavy, and they slumped back limply against the headboard. They were not asleep, but they both appeared to be sedated. Good, I said. Now, can you hear me, my dears? Yes, Mama, Natalie said, her voice slurring as if she were in a dream. Thank you, Kit. Nathan, love, can you hear me? Yes, dear, Nathan said, just as slowly. Very well, I said. I want you both to listen carefully. Priestess Laura has given me this gift so that you will both know that the blood is real and that the church's words are true. The power of the blood joins me to Priestess Laura, and that same power joins you both to me. I felt Laura's gentle leading in my thoughts, and I drew closer, sitting on the bed and taking Nathan and Natalie's hands into my own. I looked deeply into their eyes, and they looked back at me, open, waiting. Allura did something else through our connection, and then I could feel the echoes of Nathan and Natalie's own feelings, fear, awe, and confusion. But over all of it lay the calm Allura and I had given them, and underneath lay the core of love that united us as a family. I need you both to trust me, I said. I am learning so many new things, my dears, and tonight Allura showed me one of the deeper mysteries. I am so close to understanding everything— If the blood can do this through me now, imagine what it can do when I am a full priestess. Nathan and Natalie said nothing. The calm I had given them still held sway over their hearts. I squeezed both their hands tightly. I know I have been busy, I said, turning my eyes especially to Natalie. I haven't given you the attention you deserve, my kit, and for that I am truly sorry. I promise to do better. I love you, Natalie and I want what's best for you. I love you too, Mama, Natalie said. She still sounded like she was speaking through a dream. I know you do, Kit. I turned then to Nathan. My love, I'm sorry that I couldn't find the words to say to help you feel what I have felt. You have been wandering in the lonely cold of doubt, and I have not known how to help you into the place of life and warmth. Again at Allura's urging, I placed my hand over his heart. Come home now, my love. Feel the welcome of the blood calling you home. I felt the power of the blood stirring within me, reaching out. I felt Nathan's heartbeat quicken. His eyes snapped open wide, and I stared into them, holding his gaze as Allura had so often held mine. The blood is the life, I said. The blood is the life, he whispered. 
The blood binds our hearts one to another, I said. The blood binds us, Nathan agreed. I splayed out my fingers across his chest, pressing in harder with the fingertips. I could not have explained why. I was guided by a will greater than my own. I felt the power flowing out of me, filling Nathan's body, binding itself to the centers of mystic power that ran through his abdomen, chest, and head. I could not even say how I knew these things were happening. Unlike my daughter, I was no wizard. But I knew. The flow of power closed itself off then. I felt it as the sudden absence of a tingling heat that had filled my hands, arms, and chest. The connection to Priestess Allura grew quiet as well. I folded my hands in my lap and waited, watching my husband and my daughter as they slowly returned to full awareness. What... what just happened? Natalie rubbed at her eyes and looked around the guest room in confusion. I'm... I'm not sure, Nathan said. It felt like I was dreaming. He looked up at me then, his bat-like ears twitching forward in sudden attention. Amelie, love, did we have a fight? I smiled at him. What would we have fought about, my darling? He frowned and shook his head. I... It was something about Natalie and Priestess Allura. At dinner we discussed how Natalie is to be Priestess Allura's attendant, I said. I wouldn't have called it an argument. Would you, Natalie? Natalie beamed at me. No, Mama. It will be a great honor to serve the priestess. That's right, Git, I said warmly. There is so much she will teach you. The blood flows through her and makes its will known to us. And the blood is the life, Natalie said happily. Nathan and I echoed her together. The blood is the life, we said. 13. Natalie My memories of that spring and summer are... fuzzy. I remember being happy. Sort of. Mom and Dad didn't fight, so that was good. I worked hard on all my classes, and I passed the novitiate exams at my wizard's guild. My guildmaster told me later he was surprised when my parents said I was going on a leave of absence. Apparently he tried to convince me to stay, at least until I told him I was going to serve Priestess Allura, and then he stopped arguing about it. I don't remember any of that. Being the priestess's attendant was like living inside a dream. You know how in dreams you sort of wander around and things happen and you sort of think you understand them when they do, but then you look back and you try to make sense of it, and you realize you can't put all the pieces together? That was my life. It wasn't a bad dream, not a nightmare, but it was definitely weird, and I never felt like I was in control of any of it. Huh. Maybe that's why I decided to take up a nyromancy. Once I finally woke up... I never wanted to feel that way again. Some fragments from that dream I do remember. I carried the sacraments to the altar before service and cleaned up afterwards. In between, I stood off to the side and watched, listening to Allura's sermons. I don't remember anything she said, but just the sound of her voice made me feel content. I did the priestess's laundry, cleaned her office, 
brought her water when she was thirsty, fetched books and scrolls from the library for her studies. I knelt at her feet when she met with the other priests. She had this little pillow in the conference room that was always there waiting for me, and I would rest my knees on it. She would run her fingers through my fur as she talked, scratching my ears like a dog. The weird thing was that I liked it, at least at the time. Priestess Allura had other servants, too, grown-up ones. They mostly worked around the temple during the week, doing chores like sweeping and vacuuming and tending the garden. They were mostly young and human and good-looking. They wore white clothes, and not very many of them. The priests mostly acted like they were invisible, but sometimes Allura would send me to fetch one of them and bring them to her office. They would all react the same way. As soon as they saw the priestess, they would go over and kneel in front of her, pressing their foreheads into the floor. Then Allura would send me off to do something else for a while. When I came back, the servants would be lying on the floor, or flopped in a chair or across a couch or something. They were sleepy and had a hard time walking, and they didn't say much. I sort of knew what drugs were. Not really, but the priests would talk to us about people who stuck needles in their veins and polluted the blood inside themselves with poison. It was a terrible sin. I wondered if the servants were doing something like that, but Allura didn't seem to be mad at them. She just told me to take them back to their little rooms, give them food and water, and then let them sleep. Looking back on all of this now, it feels ridiculous that I didn't realize what was going on. Like I said, though, everything was dreamlike and fuzzy, and it was so hard to think for myself. Following instructions was so much easier, and when Priestess Allura looked into my eyes, I forgot about doing anything else. I've never been raped. I hope to all the gods I never will be. But when I hear people talk about what it's like especially when it's someone close to you that does it. I always think about that summer. I can't quite figure out why. I'm not sure I want to. Fourteen. Nathan. Natalie told me once that she could never remember what happened that summer. I was so relieved to hear it. For me, it's something I can never forget. They couldn't just turn off my brain, you see. I'm a lawyer. That's why I was valuable to them. And a lawyer needs his mind. Isn't much good to anyone without it. So when Amelie took me to Priestess Laura, she left my mind intact. It was my will she took. You hear a lot of whispers about vampires in Metamore City. Everybody knows they're around, sure, but nobody seems to agree on exactly what they're like. Some people say they're ordinary men and women, struggling with a curse, just like the curse of Metamore. Maybe they have some unnatural instincts, and maybe their diet is a little grotesque. But that's no different from a theriomorph like me or Amelie. Hells, especially me and Amelie. Others say the vampires are monsters, but they're civilized monsters. 
like the Incubi and Succubi. Not exactly trustworthy, and worth the Lightbringers keeping a close eye on them, but not really worth getting worked up about. They've figured out how to live with the mortal races, and they police their own kind. But then there are the other stories. People say that the vampires secretly control the government, that we're all just cattle in a big, free-range feeding ground. They say the blood of a vampire makes you as strong as ten men, or gives you magic powers. They say that a vampire who feeds on you can read your mind and steal your soul. And once you've fallen under the spell of one, you'll never be free. And, of course, they say that the Church of Eternal Brotherhood is a cult that teaches people to worship vampires as divine creatures. Looking back on it now, I can see a bit of truth in all those stories, and plenty of exaggeration to go with it. Nobody really knows what the vampires are like. Nobody but the vamps themselves and the people who serve them. That summer, I learned a lot about vampires. I just couldn't do a damned thing about it. That first night, when Amelie took me to Allura's apartment, she made me strip naked and kneel on the floor in front of the priestess, before doing the same herself. Allura spent a long time just staring into my eyes. Before, I'd always tried to keep my eyes away from hers. There was something about her gaze that I just found unnerving. But now, I stared right back at her, helpless and not really worried about it. Allura smiled as she ran her hand through the fur on the top of my head. Nathan Grace, you have a most devoted wife, she said. She has seen your doubt and fear and longs for you to know the truth. The blood binds us one to another, I said. I don't know where the words came from. Maybe Amelie put them in my head. Or maybe it was the priestess herself. Yes, Elura said, and it binds us in obedience and submission to those greater than ourselves. This is the great truth of the blood, Nathan Grace. For just as all blood must obey the drawing of the heart, so everyone in whom the blood flows must obey the drawing of the great heart that commands it. She is our queen, and one day all blood will flow in obedience to her. Elura had never spoken like this in church. She spoke of order and humility and service, but not of a great heart or a queen. It was hard to think, and harder still to speak, but carefully I formed the words. Who is this queen, my lady? I asked. You will know her in time, Elura assured me. For now, you serve her by serving me, just as I serve the one above me. Do you wish to serve me well? I didn't have to think about it this time. Yes, my lady. Good. Then take your human form. She looked aside at my wife. You too, Amelie. I wish to see you as you are, not as the curse made you to be. Amelie and I had both been theriomorphs from birth. To my mind, I was the vampire batmorph I saw in the mirror. But every theriomorph learns how to shift for curiosity's sake, if nothing else. Tapping that magic was second nature, something I could manage easily, even in my present adult state. Fur withdrew, human hair sprouted, bodies shifted and twisted and bent, and in moments I knelt before her as a human man, fair-skinned, 
red-haired, most of seven feet tall, with a broad chest and strong arms. Amelie knelt beside me, her skin a little duskier than mine, her hair long and coal-black. She caressed my back and looked up in adoration at the priestess. Allura looked at us side by side and smiled, and then I saw her fangs for the first time, extended and ready to feed. I wasn't frightened. I was too far gone for that. She cupped our cheeks, one in each hand, and made this low, happy growl in the back of her throat. Then she grabbed me by one shoulder and spun me around until I was halfway on top of Amelie. Faster than I knew what was happening, she knelt behind me, gripped my hair, pulled my head roughly back, and buried her fangs in the base of my neck. Two small stabs of pain quickly gave way to a euphoria that flooded every nerve in my body. What happened next? Look, I really don't want to talk about this. It's personal, and it's embarrassing, and... Yes. Yes, I know. But you don't really want to know all the details, do you? All right, fine. But I want to be clear. I'm doing this for her. When Allura bit me, it's... It's something that humans were never meant to have words for. The vampires call it the sharing, and it's a bigger mindfuck than any drug you've ever tried. For me, it was like having a goddess invade my head. I felt Allura inside me, a brilliant, shining creature, glorious and powerful. She looked down on me with love, indulgent, superior, patrician, possessive love, the kind of love some men have for their dogs. Inside that vision, I saw myself as she saw me, a handsome, endearing pet, to be well-trained and then enjoyed. And it all felt exactly right. Amelie held me and watched with pleasure as Allura claimed me from behind. She ran her hands over my skin, and the sensation of her bare human skin against mine only added to the thrill of the moment. As the sharing vision faded, I found myself aware of my surroundings once more, and I soon realized that I was painfully aroused. Amelie looked up at Allura for permission. I didn't see her, but she must have nodded or something, because Amelie grabbed my cock and guided me inside her. As I made love to my wife, more fiercely and desperately than I had in years, Allura ran a claw down my back, adding delicious pain to my pleasure. She ran her tongue along the wound and moaned in delight. "'Your blood is so sweet right now, my pet,' Allura purred. She grabbed my hair again and twisted my head around for a kiss. I gave it to her, passionately, while my wife bucked and cried out beneath me. "'Yes!' she shouted. "'Give yourself to the blood, my love. Worship your mistress!' Allura broke our kiss. Now that's a fine idea. On your back, pet. Take Amelie with you. Obediently, I reached down and gripped my wife about the waist, then lay back, carrying her along so that she straddled me. 
Amelie bounced up and down on my cock a few times, testing the angle, and then she settled into a steady rhythm. Once Amelie was settled, Allura straddled my head, pressing her sex down into my face. I immediately got to work, pleasuring her with lips and teeth and tongue, even while I ran my hands up and down my wife's supple body. I couldn't see them kissing from where I lay, but I heard Allura's growls and Amelie's moans. When Allura bit her, I heard the gasp of pain, followed by the ecstasy of the sharing. The priestess used us for hours, being pleasured by one or the other or both of us in turns. Neither of us minded. How could we? We had looked into her deepest self and found a goddess there. Our place was to submit and obey, and Allura paid us both the rewards of that obedience. I lost count of how many times I climaxed, and the narcotic ecstasy of being fed upon made it even sweeter. When she was finally sated, Allura left us in a naked tangle on the floor and went out to see to the night's business. Amelie nuzzled up happily against my chest and sighed. Both of us were drenched in sweat and other fluids, and we were happier than at any time I could remember. Looking back on it now, I understand why people become blood slaves, or thralls, as the older vampires like to say. It's so easy to give yourself up to someone else, if they make you feel good and promise to take care of you. Free will is such a nebulous concept. In some ways it can be terrifying. I heard this saying once from one of those tough homesteaders up in the Northlands. Man is everywhere a wolf, but he longs to be a dog, and all he asks is that his collar be comfortable, and his chain long enough to give him the illusion of freedom. Allura put us both in collars and chains that night, but they were as comfortable as any dog could ask for. It was early May when Allura took us. When classes ended for the summer, she took Natalie. She never fed on her, as far as I know. At any rate, Natalie says she doesn't remember anything like that, and she would remember. The sharing isn't something you forget. But Allura used her magic to bind Natalie and control her, to make her compliant and obedient, the same way she'd done through Amelie on that first night. Natalie became exactly what she feared she would. Meek, humble, completely devoted to Allura, and drained of all the spark and fire that made her herself. I saw it all happening. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was my responsibility to protect her. I was her father by all the gods. But every time I tried to talk to Amelie about it, she would reassure me that Natalie was happy and full of purpose. And soon Allura would summon me and feed on me and then I wouldn't worry about anything for weeks. The guilt and anger were still inside me, but they were buried down deep, rationalized, and suppressed into invisibility. Becoming Allura's thrall turned out to be a great career move as well. It was late July when she summoned me to her office at the church to give her legal counsel. The church had a long-term contract with a maintenance company, which handled all of their repairs and upkeep on their facilities, both here and overseas. 
Allura's accountant had found evidence that the contractor was cheating her, exaggerating the costs of supplies and services in order to line their own pockets. I don't understand, I said. This contractor is vampire-owned, isn't it? Can't you appeal to the queen? If I had learned anything about vampires by then, it was that hierarchy was everything to them. Allura, though, just rolled her eyes. The mistress respects those who are strong enough to look after themselves. If I cannot protect myself from being cheated, then I will lose face in front of my peers. No. We must solve this problem ourselves. I bowed to her. You have a strong case, mistress. I'm sure Jenkins, Sawyer, and Roche would be happy to take it. No, Allura said, pointing a finger at me. I don't trust your senior partners. Those old rascals are probably friends to the one who's cheating me. I trust you. You're smart, you're talented, and I know you won't betray me. Never, my lady, I said, bowing my head. But I do work for them. They don't have to give me the case if they don't want to. Come work for me instead. You can be the full-time legal counsel for the Metamore chapter of the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. She grinned. I promise to make it worth your while. Well, what could I say to that? She was my mistress, after all. Jenkins, Sawyer, and Roche were not happy to see me go. Old man Jenkins looked like he had bitten down on something sour as he congratulated me on my new position. Sawyer and Roche weren't there for the goodbyes at all. Still, I thanked Mr. Jenkins profusely for the opportunities he'd given me and said goodbye to everyone else in the office on my way out. I'd see most of these people at church, after all. There was no reason to cultivate any bad feelings. I didn't tell any of my old co-workers about the salary Allura was paying me, triple what I had been making at the firm. But it was hard to disguise the effects of it, and Allura didn't want me to. She understood that a job's prestige and its salary go hand in hand and she wanted everyone to know how highly she valued my talents. Besides, once I won that case against the contractor, I saved the church enough money to pay my new salary for ten years. Amelie was overjoyed about my new job, especially since it put me in closer contact with her for much of the day. We started meeting for lunch in the church's staff lounge, where we would look at property listings and plan for our move to the fourth Skyway level. We were moving up in the world, both figuratively and literally, and my new salary would finally allow us to escape the cramped quarters and obstructed views of Metamore City's lower levels. Even more importantly, it would allow us to live in closer proximity to Priestess Allura, so that she could call on us at any hour without being inconvenienced by long travel times. The move was done before the end of August. Everything seemed to be going our way at last. We had wealth and security, a lovely new home, the respect of our community, and a beautiful, kind, and generous mistress to give our lives order and purpose. We had no way of knowing what was stirring on the edges of our perfect life, or how it would all fall to pieces just a few months later.
And that's the end of part three. In next week's episode, Allura comes to Amelie for help in facing a grave threat to their chapter of the church. But she can't begin to guess what the price for that help will be for all of them. That's coming up in part four of The Three Graces. Three of the biggest rules in writing are write what you know, show, don't tell, and put your butt in that chair and freaking write already. To keep me honest on that last one, here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,730 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 676 words per hour. As of Friday, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 109 days without breaking my chain. The first half of this week was rough. I was still dealing with the lingering effects of that cold. I found myself fading earlier in the evening, as my body sought more sleep in order to recover. Unfortunately, that meant that by the time I sat down to write, my brain was mostly mush. I actually wrote most of this week's script on Monday and Tuesday night, because writing about writing stories is a lot easier than actually writing stories. I continued working on maternal instinct this week. Progress was slower than I would have liked, but I'm in the final stretch now, and I should have it finished early next week. I feel like this one is going to need to rest for a while before I edit it. The tone I'm aiming for in this story is tricky. I want the reader to feel vaguely unsettled through most of the story, but not quite sure why. At the same time, I want to make sure that there are enough hints about the twist at the end of the story that it doesn't feel like a cheat. It's a delicate balancing act, and it might not work, but I feel like my chances of pulling it off are better if I give myself a couple of weeks away and then come back to it with fresh eyes. I also put in a fair amount of work this week on the publishing side of the business. I've been trying to get the first Metamore City print collection out the door for a while now, but I was hampered by a lack of funds for cover art. Now that our financial situation has eased up a little, I can actually get moving on this thing again. On Monday night, I put up a bunch of cover mock-ups on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group and my Facebook author page, where I asked for feedback. The responses were very diverse. A lot of people liked very different designs for different reasons. I haven't made my final decision yet, so if you're listening to this in the week it was released, head on over and check out the designs to vote for your favorite. I want to make a final choice and move forward by the end of the month. Finally, let's hear some feedback. Good evening, Chris and all the metamorphs out there. This is Chechi Judy, the Polish blonde in central Massachusetts. Just wanted to record some quick feedback in regards to the latest episode 17, The Three Graces Part 2. I am enjoying this story immensely. This part really grabbed me because I grew up Catholic. Both sides of my family are Catholic. So Catholic, sometimes it even hurts. And yes, I get that. Why don't you get to go to church? Well, I am also lived through the time where all the priests were being accused of molesting the kids. And that's a sore test of faith, let me tell you. In any case, it rang a lot of bells. And growing up in the doctrine and being indoctrinated, you know, you 
do this, you do that, you join the CYC, you join the youth groups, you know. I mean, I still have faith, but I don't belong to any parish, and I will not do it because of other things. Basically, the hypocrisy of going against the first commandment, love one another, and the Catholic Church can't seem to do that. So this story is bringing it home. I cannot wait for the rest. Keep up the good work, Chris. Great going on your streak. I am so proud of you and can't wait to hear more. This is Chachi Judy signing off. It's funny because when I was writing this story, even though I was consciously drawing on the feel of the Catholic Mass for the CEB's rituals, I wasn't thinking at all about the sex abuse scandals or the parallels between that real-life abuse and the sorts of abuses that a vampire priesthood might get up to with its human parishioners. It's amazing how your subconscious mind can be working on a level that you're not even aware of when you're writing the story. Anyway, I can definitely empathize with your feelings about organized religion versus faith. It's something that I've struggled with a lot myself over the years. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. It's good to hear from you again. Hello, Chris. It's Sarah Testarosa calling in with feedback for parts one and two of The Three Graces. I had a feeling I'd enjoy this story just because I really liked Nathan and Natalie in Dreams of Change. And, you know, I've been anticipating it for a while since you said that you had started writing it, so yay! I like that you're writing the story, or wrote the novel from multiple perspectives. The first chapter with Amelie and Nathan's parts and the the falling in love and the trials of starting out at work and stuff. I I did really enjoy that and I like the voice you're using for Amelie. I I like hearing how um, people do voices of another sex but also accents and stuff like that. It's interesting in this because when I saw Nathan in Dreams of Change, like seeing this, it totally fits with his character in Dreams of Change but just with dreams of change, you wouldn't have thought of his past being like this. I feel like by that point, he hides it well that he's been through all of this because he just seems to be kind of like all business except for caring a lot about his daughter. And, you know, well, he was working very hard and caring about his daughter, but also caring about his wife. And I sense a little bit less of a sense of formality about him in this story. And part of me is wondering if, like, the fact that we saw him being a little bit more... I don't know if it's formal is the right word, but in Dreams of Change is because he was at interacting with someone outside the family most of the time when we saw him, or whether he sort of built some sort of shield. I know I'm kind of projecting, but... or predicting, really. I think it's both, actually. Nathan had to develop some guardedness about his emotions, a sort of personal restraint to avoid showing weakness. That's a survival skill for any attorney, but especially for someone who works extensively with vampires. The other thing to keep in mind is that in Dreams of Change, Nathan is talking to Ben and the police from a position of strength. He's the one in the room who has the power, and his composure reflects that. In this story, we don't yet know who Nathan is talking to, But as I hope this episode makes clear, Nathan is not in a position of strength. Someone is compelling him to a degree of honesty and openness that he would rather not share, but it seems that his circumstances require it. That vulnerability comes through in the way he speaks as a narrator. But anyway, in part two, I definitely didn't expect, I mean, I don't know what I would have expected, but I didn't expect Amelie to get 
wrapped up in the church so quickly and it's interesting that the way that it affected her I like how um, Nathan does really think that you know there is some sort of mind control going on here and so of course you know I start thinking about the vampires because we learn lots of the, about them from uh, making the cut mostly and their ability to control but the thing is I don't I have to remember a little bit because I don't remember everything about them but um, definitely there's something going on here obviously and I just have a feeling it's gonna be really sad <laughs> Allura's power as a vampire does play a role in Amelie's conversion, but there's more to it than that. Transcendent spiritual experiences are a real thing that affects all sorts of people, from all walks of life, even people who seem as practical and level-headed as Amelie. I would also point out that these moments of transcendence don't seem to have anything to do with the truth or falsehood in a church's theology, but people who experience such moments often feel that they are a validation— that something about that religion is real and meaningful. So, is the transcendence a purely biological phenomenon, something that happens in some people's brains but not others? Or is it a sign that there's an underlying spiritual reality that people from all these different religious traditions are touching on? I don't know, and I don't think anyone else knows either. But Amelie had an experience like that, and that, more than Allura's vampirism, was the root of her conversion. I'm definitely enjoying the ride so far, and seeing Natalie younger is really pretty neat. Again, you can see this person growing up to be the person who's in Dreams of Change, but in Dreams of Change, you wouldn't necessarily know that she had all of this backstory. So this is actually really kind of enlightening, giving all this background on her. Thanks. That's one of the things I love about writing stories like this. I like to take characters that people think they know and go back and add additional depth and complexity to their story. That's one of the reasons why I enjoyed writing Making the Cut so much, because that story did for Abby Preston the same thing that The Three Graces is doing for Natalie and Nathan. And I do like the fact that by the time she's at university, she's gained a bit of more self-acceptance surrounding her appearance you know, even if she doesn't like the fact that she looks the way she does, she's not going to let herself be demeaned because of it, I remember, as part of that story. So, I don't know. I think it's really cool because hearing about, you know, her struggling through puberty especially and not having her mom there for her was really pretty sad. I liked the end of the chapter, and I like the music you chose for this. Um, that's a really pretty piece. I, it sounds like the same artist who did the one song uh, where Danny and Jared go out to that one place, bar, thingy-majigger. I don't know. Is that the same artist? I forget if that was... I, I would have to go digging in the archives unless you want to just tell, tell us in the, uh, the feedback section. Yes. The song you're thinking of is In the Circle, which is also by Hungry Lucy. You can find more of their music at HungryLucy.com. But um, I'll have to check that artist out because I neglected to before, but I really like the woman's voice and the instrumentals. So anyway, I think that's about it for now, but I'm definitely looking forward to next week's episode. Uh, Keep up the good work. Thanks, Sarah. It's always great to hear from you. I look forward to your reactions to this week's episode. Ted Stoffers wrote in with this message. I found these odd Raven and the Writing Desk posts in the feed. WTF? I trusted the source, but it didn't sound like Metamore City. I thought it might be Chris's soapbox. I'd listen. I was really happy to find it wasn't. 
loved the clean-up one. Next day I mainlined the one with the devil, tried to stop. Can't find the titles. Ted, that would be Clean Up on Skyway 3 from Episode 1, and To Walk in Shadow from Episodes 2 through 7. Ted continues, I've slowed down a little. Other podcasts have gotten in the way, but I'm on to flying free. Superheroes in the real world? It's been done before, but Orson Scott Card said, The novelty and freshness you'll bring to the field won't come from the new ideas you think up. Truly new ideas are rare, and usually turn out to be variations on old themes anyway. No, your freshness will come from the way you think, from the person you are. It will inevitably show up in your writing, provided you don't mask it with heavy-handed formulas or clichés. I think that's really true, Ted. Almost all of what we call creativity is remixing elements of the real world in ways that reveal something about ourselves and our own worldviews. I think that's why J.R.R. Tolkien liked to call it subcreation rather than actually creating something new. Ted concludes his letter by saying, I was going to suggest Patreon, but it looks like you already knew about it. I tossed what I could into the barrel. Hope you can make the full cast goal. Those are awesome but I agree the story is more important than a full cast. Welcome back. Love to see more Metamore City and the other things you dream up. Parentheses. Is there another street rat story in the hopper? And what happened to that motorcycle one you read at Oricon? Close parentheses. Keep it on the bright side. Unquote. Thank you, Ted. As to your questions, my next big Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least, will involve several street rats including fan-favorite Callie Linder and a rat theriomorph named Lyle. The swoop-racing scene that you're referring to takes place in Things Unseen, somewhere near the middle of the book. I don't remember the exact chapter. Since you're a Patreon subscriber, you can get a free ebook version of Things Unseen from Smashwords.com. Just use the coupon code that you received when you made your pledge. And on that note... Let's stop and recognize our newest Patreon patrons, Ted and Kevin. Both have subscribed at the $3 a month level, which gives them early access to things like story previews, cover art, author commentaries, and more. You can sign up today at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. If you'd like to leave feedback for the show, send your message in text or mp3 audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail. Call area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook author page is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow Metamorphs, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group or the Metamore City discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. And if you want to help spread the word about the show, leave us a review on iTunes. The links to all these sites will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Come back next time for more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Three Graces is A Girl Alone by Hungry Lucy. The song was made available through Mevio's Music Alley, the Podsafe Music Network. For more of their music, please visit their website at HungryLucy.com. 
The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.